were very, very careful. In a city like London, the church of Jesus Christ can, can swiftly develop an inferiority complex. You know, we're weak and we're few in number. And our opponents, the opponents of Jesus Christ, are, are neither of those things. Islam and uh, atheism, militant evangelical atheism, these things they seem not only to be stronger than we are, but they also in themselves seem to be much more united than the church of Jesus Christ. Well, in the, the passage of scripture that we are focusing on just now, God addresses this very fear. Now, you see, we, we know a couple of things about the, the people of God, don't we? Like, we know at this point that they have, very recently, they've returned from a period of exile in Babylon. We know that. The other thing that we know is that in some ways, their situation was very similar to our own situation here tonight. Because they return from exile, and guess what? They are weak, and they are few in number. But here tonight in Zechariah, God speaks to them through the prophet, and what he does is he reminds them of one very, very crucial detail. A detail that he himself, the Lord who has created all things, the sovereign God of all the world. He is with them. He is on their side. So, let's turn to this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 6, and let's consider something of of what God tells us about himself. We're going to look at a number of things. Firstly, I want you to notice with me here, we see something of the impregnability of heaven. The impregnability of heaven. Okay, over the last, I don't know what it is, it's certainly last three months or so, really what we've done on our Sunday nights is we've kind of stood next to Zechariah, haven't we? And we've kind of admired all these pictures and these visions that he has been shown by God. Now, truth is, that all of that kind of comes to an end tonight. Because what we read there is the eighth. It's the last of these uh, visions that Zechariah is shown by God. So what, what does he see? What's this, uh, this eighth vision about? Well, if you look at verse 1, if you've got your Bible open there, you'll see that Zechariah kind of looks up And what does he see in this last vision? But he sees mountains, two mountains, and they are mountains made of bronze. Now, it's going to come as no surprise to any of you that the commentators, they just go to town on this, you know, and they've got a vast array of ideas about what these these mountains represent. Like some of the commentators, quite interestingly, I think, they suggest that the mountains are hindrances. Not bad. These mountains are obstacles for the people of God who have returned from exile. Some of the, some of the commentators are really firm. They, they know for sure what these mountains are. One is uh, the Mount of Olives. The other is Mount Zion. They're absolutely sure about that. But wait a minute. Look what we're told here. Horses. Chariots that are later called wind spirits from where? Chariots from heaven, they emerge 
from these mountains, in between these mountains. So what we've got here, what I think these mountains represent is actually the dwelling place of God. Zechariah is looking at these mountains and he's been shown something of, of God's abode, been shown heaven. Are you convinced? Are you, are you with me on this or, or not? Uh, if not, know that this is kind of further emphasized by that other detail we've got. They are bronze mountains. Now, I, I love what one of the writers says about this. He says, he's talking about the reason that they are bronze. And he's saying, well, this is the eighth vision that Zechariah has over the course of one night. So now the sun is coming up. And it's morning time. And it is reflecting off these mountains. Hence the reason they are bronze. And that's pretty, isn't it? But it's also uh, pretty unconvincing. No, I ask you this. Can you remember, if you remember, think back in the Old Testament, can you remember what stood at the entrance of the temple, the Old Testament temple? Do you remember what stands at the entrance of the Old Testament temple? You've got two great pillars of bronze. I think that fits, doesn't it? That fits. You've got, think about Zechariah 6 here. You've got two great uses of bronze that are sitting either side, this gateway to the very dwelling place of God. So these mountains, they are. This is where, this is where God lives. This is the dwelling place of God. You still kind of have a question though, don't we? Why bronze? Dwelling place of God, why not? What would you, you'd expect gold, wouldn't you? Or, I don't know, you'd expect silver, at least, or copper. Why bronze? We'll get this. Jeremiah chapter 1. What you've got there is God commission the prophet. And he says to him, in the face of your enemies, Jeremiah, I am going to make you as though you are a wall of bronze. You see it there? And so many times throughout the Old Testament, bronze symbolizes fortification. You know, brute strength, impregnability. Okay, bronze. And so you take that idea, take it with you into Zechariah 6. Do you see what we've got here in front of us tonight? This isn't just a picture of the dwelling place of God. This is better than that. This is a picture for us of the impregnability, the fortification of of God's house, of of, of where he dwells. I love that. And I think that this should enthuse us and excite us. Why? Because it means our God is different from all the other make-believe, the gods that are made up, the idols that that are out there. Do you see it? God is not like that. Our God is mighty. His power here is insurmountable. His, 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 his place is an invincible place. Do you see it? He dwells in mountains of bronze. A transcendent, all-powerful God. And you see, don't you, how that picture of God's house, how it should color our understanding of our positions as his people. God is that powerful. You see what it means? It means that Islam, and it means that atheism, they do not threaten our spiritual, eternal well-being. 
They don't. And it means that those things, Islam and other belief systems and atheists, that they can in no way alter the purposes of the God of the Bible. You see that our God, the God of the Bible, is all-powerful. He is above them. Where does he dwell? He dwells in, do you see it, mountains of bronze that nothing, no one, no belief system at all can ever storm the ramparts of, of glory. So the impregnability of heaven. Okay, second Notice as well, we see something here of the involvement of God. The impregnability of heaven, the involvement of God. Now, surely one of the, 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 the best known, most famous passages of Scripture, or passages in the New Testament, is surely Acts chapter 17. You know, Paul's sort of evangelistic efforts in Mars Hill. We know it. I mean, we looked at it as a, congreg- as a congregation, not all that do you remember what happens though like paul goes into the areopagus there and he engages with these athenian philosophers okay and he's 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 convincing them try to persuade them for christ now one of the philosophies that paul engages with there was the epicureans okay epicureans now those people they believed a lot of the stuff that that, that we've just looked at like the Epicureans believed that God was all-powerful, that he was a great God, but they believed that he just wasn't concerned with life on earth. So, awesome God, you know, brilliant, transcendent God, yeah, you know, dwelling in, in mountains of bronze, but totally disconnected, totally disinterested in, in, in our lives and life on earth. Now, the question I want to answer here is, well, is that right? Is that, is that, does God just not care about life on earth? Well, as we look into verse 2, if you have a look at it, I guess you'd be forgiven. If you sit through this sermon series, you would be forgiven for having a slight sense of deja vu, wouldn't you? In verse 2, have a look at it. We are showing a picture in verse 2 of colored horses. Four colored horses. And we're like, well, wait a minute. We've had this before, you know? And there was. There was a previous, earlier vision of four colored horses. Now, here's the thing. Last time, when we looked at those four colored horses, I kind of said the colors aren't really that important. You know, people spend their lifetime trying to work out the symbolism of the colors. No. But it does call to mind another portion of Scripture for us, doesn't it? You look at this and you think four colored horses. Now, think forward in the Bible, New Testament times. Where would you go if I was to say four you know, colored horses in the Bible? Where would you go? You'd go to Revelation, wouldn't you? And you would go to Revelation 6. You know that sort of phrase that's used, the verse that's used in the, in the films where you've got the pale horse with death as its rider and hell traveling. Yeah, okay, in Revelation. Now, here's the thing. In every single time that there's four colored horses used like this, there is common ground. There's a common detail. And it's this. That those horses do not just roam throughout the earth. Every time it specifically says that they are sent out by God. That they are sent, these horses, by God. Now wait a minute, do you see what that tells us? 
It tells us that this infinite God that we are seeing in Zechariah, he doesn't confine himself to his heavenly fortress. Do you see that? It's showing us that, that God does not just go into his mountains of bronze and turn the key and, and switch off. It tells us that the Epicureans were wrong. God is sending out horses. God is sending out messengers throughout his earth to, to gather information about us, that his knowledge is entire, and he, that all these horses' messengers bring that information back to him. And I think, honestly, that that is a, a message we need to hear as the people of God this evening. Because isn't it true that sometimes even as the children of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as the children of God, we can feel abandoned and we can feel isolated. Isn't that the case? Now, you know with your head if you're a Christian and I know with my head we, we say, you know, all things work together for, for the good of the We know that with our head. And we know with our head as well that, that God is infinite. Oh, he's all powerful. And isn't it the case, though, sometimes it just feels, though, like we are going through the difficult things by ourselves. And it feels as though God is disconnected and that God doesn't really care and that he is disinterested. Are you in that situation even right now? Does that make sense? I would ask you, urge you, to think about what you are being told in, in Zechariah chapter 6. We are being told here that this glorious and infinite God is not just aware, but he is involved in even the minutiae of your life. Like we're told those horses, they go out throughout the world, throughout the world, throughout. God knows exactly what is going on in your life right now. And more than that, this God who dwells in mountains of bronze, he's on it. Like he's actually engaged right now with you in your life. He's overseeing even the most difficult, difficult times of, of your life. And because of that, do you see what we, the people of God, must do? We must ask God that we see that. We must ask God for spiritual sight. See, again, go back in your Old Testament. I wonder, do you remember the story of Elisha's servant... And Arameans. Do you remember that story? Elisha's servant? Let me tell you. They're in the city. Elisha and his servant. And the city is surrounded by enemies. And this guy, you know, Elisha's servant, he's panicking. He's scared. And, and Elisha asks God, he prays that, <laughs> that his servant would see the reality of what's happening. And, and do you remember the answer at the prayer? Elisha's servant, he looks up and he looks to the hills and the hills are full of flaming horses and chariots. Full. All there, all ready just to do like that, the, the bidding of God. We have to pray for, for a sense, a spiritual sight. We have to pray for faith, faith, belief that our God isn't distant. He's not disconnected. He, he's involved in your life right as we speak tonight. We have to pray that we believe that the God of heaven is at work on earth. So the impregnability of heaven, we see the involvement of God. 
Thirdly, we see the injury of enemies. The injury of enemies. One of uh, my favorite games to play with my, my three kids is that old classic, Spot the Difference. You cannot beat a game of Spot the Difference with the kids. Like you know, like you've got two pictures. Obviously, we know how to play it, but we've, we've got two pictures, almost identical, and you're just trying to notice the very subtle differences. And it's, usually, it's really obvious. But with my kids, the game can go on for 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 hours on end, which is sometimes not a bad thing. Um, okay, if we were to hold up the earlier image of the four coloured horses. And then we were to take this image of the four coloured horses. We're putting them together. Hopefully, it wouldn't take us too long to work out the differences. Don't know. Cast your mind back. Do you remember it? The, the four coloured. Do you remember where it was set? It was set in a valley. Do you remember the myrtle trees? Yep. This one's different. This one's set. There's got the mountainscape. Right. Okay. There's another difference. Do you remember that the earlier vision of the horses? The horses had riders. That was the extra bit of information. What is the extra bit of information here? Do you see it in verse 1? Write me. These horses are pulling chariots. The horses are pulling chariots. That makes it entirely different. See, you have... You have to understand that chariots were the number one weapon in the ancient world. This, do you see, is not just a picture of God's expansive knowledge. This is a picture of God sending out agents of destruction. He's sending out chariots. He is sending out horses, messengers, envoys, yes, but to judge and to destroy. And that's it. That's a turn of events, isn't it? And so really, you and I just now, we've got to work out, well, who is being judged here? Who faces the the wrath? Now, I tell you what, that takes us to a problem. Like, I know that quite a lot of you, we use different Bible translations in here, okay? Some are using the King James Version, some people are using the ESV, some are using the NIV. Look at verse 6. Now, where are the chariots being sent Some of the Bible translations are going to say they're sent to the north and the south and the east and the west. Okay? What's the church Bible got? Is it, verse 6, is it to the north and the south and the west? They seem to be amendments. And the reality is that the chariots, these agents of destruction, were sent purely, the original, to the north and to the south. Why? Because those were the locations of God's enemies. And that makes sense. Do you see that? Like the bulk of these chariots and horses were sent north. The principal seat of the enemies of of God. Those who oppose God. Think about it. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, they all come from the north. Okay? And then what have you got? You've got the south. Who comes from the south? Yes. You've got the Egyptians as well. This is about God judging his enemies. Do you see what he's saying to his people? He's saying you, you people might be weak and you might be few in number and you might feel intimidated. 
But God here is saying there's one day that's going to come where the enemies of you people and the enemies of God will be judged. This, this is a victory, a complete victory for God. His enemies are wiped out. And as much as we might like it, we can't ignore that this points forward to a final judgment of man. That's what we're dealing with here. You know, this idea of a final reckoning, that's what this is pointing us forward to. And we loathe this. And, and, and as well we know, people leave churches because we talk about the idea of God's judgment. And it's, it is hard. But I, I, I simply want to ask you this question tonight. What would you rather the Bible say about God? And what would you rather the Bible portray? Would you rather the, the Bible portray a God that's imperfect? Would you rather the Bible portray a God that absolves the murderer and the pedophile of blame? Would you rather the, the Bible portray a God who ignores uh, the tearful prayers of an abused woman? Would you rather that? No. And we have to remember who it is that God is judging at this point. Who is God judging? He's judging his enemies. That's, that's the point here, that God judges those who hate goodness, those who have turned against goodness, those who have absolutely rejected out of hand any sort of righteousness. He judges those people who hate the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he judges. He judges his, his enemies. And I think if, if we can possibly get our heads around that, then maybe our attitude will change to God's wrath. And maybe, do you know what? We will be amazed. We will be amazed that our God is so utterly perfect that he is, and allow this please, he is almost unable, unable to compromise his holiness. He has to judge. He has to judge iniquity. But wait, we should be amazed by something else. We should be amazed that to this necessary judgment, what does God do to this necessary judgment? He's added unnecessary mercy, hasn't he? Like he, he has to judge wickedness, but, but what's he done? He has sent his son into the world. And what has Christ Jesus done? He's faced this. Like this wrath, the chariots, the misery, the anger of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross has taken that. Why? For you. For us. The anger of God that we might be saved and that we might never, ever have to face that. The impregnability of heaven, the involvement of God, the injury of the enemy's last heading 
we see here something of the inevitability of salvation. Inevitability of salvation. I've talked quite a, a number of times about a literary device called an inclusio. Don't switch off when I say the words literary device, please. But an inclusio. Do you remember what, what we've said an inclusio is? In scripture, an inclusio is when the Holy Spirit begins and ends a passage of scripture in exactly the same way to make a point. Begins it the same way, ends it. And, you know, you can have an inclusio in a verse, you can have an inclusio in a chapter, or a, even a book of the Bible beginning the same way to, 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 to make a point. There is an inclusio in Zechariah. I wonder if you've picked, it, picked up on it. See, all night tonight, I've been referring to an earlier vision of four horses, haven't I? And I've been referring to a previous vision of horses. Don't you see, it's not just an earlier vision of horses. You see it? It is the first vision. So what's God done? God has begun and ended these night visions with a picture of horses and chariots and power. Why? What is God saying there? Well, God does this. He frames his visions like that to show his people, get this, the certainty of all the other visions. Do you see it? Like he, he begins with this picture of his sovereignty and his power and he ends with this picture of his sovereignty and his power. Why? So that his people stand there in Jerusalem, that they know, yes, everything in between. It isn't just a hopeful, nice idea. It's not just wishful thinking. No, he is the God of infinite power. Everything in between is certain. And you see what that means for us and here tonight? It means we've not been wasting our time. It means that everything you and I have seen over the last couple of months in Zechariah, all these visions, all that fulfillment, all the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, what is it? It is true. I mean, it's true. It's certain. And it's sure. Think about that. Think about what that means. Do you remember the, the picture of the city without walls? Do you remember it? With this people saved by grace, so numerous that they cannot be contained in Jerusalem. What is that? It's true. And it's certain. And it's sure. Do you remember the, the picture of the golden lampstand? Do you remember the church that is fled by God? It's fueled by God, protected by God. What is it? It's true and it's certain and it's sure. Do you remember the glory of the branch? Do you? Do you remember the work of the angel of the Lord? Do you remember that? Do you remember the exaltation of the olive trees? Do you remember the engraving of the stone? See, all of that is true. It's true. Do you remember the covering of our sin? Do you remember how it was carried away, our iniquity carried off? Do you remember the changing of our garments? Do you remember that? Guess what? It's true. It's happened. You know, it's certain and it's sure. And that idea of certainty God carries into this final vision. Look how it ends. Look at verse 8. What does God say? He gives us a picture of his Holy Spirit coming to rest in the land of the north. He gives us a picture of the end times and a time of peace. And I want you to see, I need you to see tonight, 
that that there is certain and it's true. That one day what will happen is that the Holy Spirit of God, you know that same Holy Spirit that hovered over the water in creation, the same Holy Spirit that just now is ministering to your heart, one day that Holy Spirit will enter into the final Sabbath rest of God. And that God himself, having now already cleansed the world of suffering and and wickedness and evil, he will make all things new. And do you see what that's for you if you're a Christian tonight? It means that on that day, the Messiah, the branch, he will escort you by his grace and he will bring you to live with him forevermore. And I ask you, where are you going to live for eternity? Where are you going to live? You're going to live in mountains made of bronze. That is true. It is certain. And in Jesus Christ, it is sure. So this idea of an inferiority complex for the church, are you having a laugh? The message of Zechariah is that our God is great. The message from Zechariah 6 is that in the end, he wins. Let's pray.